0: Well, if you have your Bibles with you, once again, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 25. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1056. If you're a guest with us, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew, and in particular, we've been studying uh, what is known as the Olivet Discourse, Jesus's final sermon before the cross and we've come to the last section this morning and we'll begin reading in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31 and I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject the sheep and the goats Matthew chapter 25 beginning in verse 31 and this is what the word of God says And when the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. And then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, This passage is the climax of Jesus' final sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, known as the Olivet Discourse. And though it is not technically a parable, this text is commonly referred to as the parable of the sheep and the goats. And while Jesus employs a few parabolic elements, such as a shepherd and sheep and goats, Jesus gives a dynamic, definitive description of the final judgment and unique to the Gospel of Matthew this passage serves as a fitting end to his final sermon his closing words here in the Olivet Discourse were one of the most severe and sobering warnings of judgment found in all of Scripture pictured as the divine separation of the righteous sheep from the unrighteous goats That judgment will occur just before Christ establishes His millennial kingdom on earth. And not only will it determine the ultimate eternal destinies of everyone living at the end of the tribulation, it will also determine who will and who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why J.C. Ryle, in his work Expository Thoughts on Matthew, summarizes this passage saying this, There are few passages in the whole Bible more solemn and heart-searching than this one. May we read it with deep and serious attention that it deserves. May we listen to it this morning with the deep and serious attention that it deserves. In this passage, Jesus gives his disciples and those who would read the Gospel of Matthew and us a final warning regarding the importance of being prepared for his return and final judgment. And I want you to notice with me four truths in this text. First, in verse 31, in the beginning of verse 32, I want you to see the setting of the judgment. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all of the nations. Now Jesus begins this passage by declaring to his disciples that one day he will return as the son of man and he will take his rightful place as king and as judge. And this title son of man that he uses for himself is the most common title that Jesus used. This title affirms His incarnation. It affirms His identity with mankind. It affirms His time of humiliation. And it affirms His time of sacrifice. It reflected His condescension, His submissiveness, His humility, His meekness, and His gracious love for all of humanity. And as you study this passage, Jesus will contrast this most common title for Himself, the Son of Man, with another title in verses 34 and verse 40. And that title is the one of a king. This condescending, humble, and humiliated Son of Man will one day return as the glorious, sovereign, reigning, and judging King of Kings And Lord of Lords. And this truth was confirmed by Jesus himself earlier in his ministry when he declared that God the Father had delegated to him all authority to judge. And this is what Jesus said of himself in John chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. For the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who has sent him. The Father has given the Son of Man who is coming as King and Judge all authority to judge. And for the believer, for those of us this morning who know Christ as their Savior, who've turned from their sins and trusted in Christ and His work on the cross, this truth of Jesus coming as our judge, it actually brings comfort because the one who sits on the throne of judgment is our Savior. He's our shepherd. He's our Lord. He's our great high priest. He is our brother and This Jesus, this kingly judge, He is the believer's friend. And there's no fear. There's reverence and awe and worship of standing before this king. But for the unbeliever, this reality of Jesus coming as judge should bring conviction. Because the one who sits on the throne of judgment is the very one that the unbeliever has dismissed despised, and denied. And I quote J.C. Ryle again when he says, to be condemned in the day of judgment by anyone would be awful, but to be condemned by him who would have saved us, that will be awful indeed. Can you imagine that? The very one that you will stand before, unbeliever, as judge and king, Who will usher you into final eternal judgment is the very one who could have redeemed you if you would have turned from your sins and trusted in Him. And according to Jesus in verse 31, this judgment, this personal judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ will take place powerfully when He comes in glory with all of the angels with Him. And though the Bible does not tell us the exact time in history when Christ will return, We know from Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29 that he will appear immediately after the seven year period of tribulation. And Jesus described that appearing with his angels this way in Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 to 31 Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Friends, Jesus is coming to judge as the Son of Man and as King. It'll be sudden, it'll be unexpected. It'll be decisive, and it will end all of human history, and it will determine human destiny. And notice what the text says in verse 31, that accompanying and assisting the Son of Man as He comes in glory and judgment will be all of His angels in heaven. The Apostle Paul described the power of this moment, of Jesus coming with His angels to judge and to rule and to reign to the Thessalonian believers. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, he gave this vivid description of what that judgment would be like. And he said, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his parable of the weeds among the wheat, Jesus further described the role his angels would play when he comes in judgment. And he said in Matthew chapter 13 verses 41 to 43, these words, The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. And This is what the word of God is saying to all of us this morning. Don't miss the soberness of this text. Jesus will come personally and Jesus will come powerfully. And then history will end and eternal destiny will begin and at the end of verse 31, Jesus says that when he comes in glory and power, he will sit on his glorious throne. And the place of his judgment will be on earth. And it will be on earth where he will sit on his glorious throne. We've heard this truth before, we usually hear it at Christmas time in one of the prophet Isaiah's most well-known prophecies in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7. But have you ever listened to that verse in the context of Matthew chapter 25 and Jesus describing what it will be like when he comes to sit on his throne and judge? This is what the prophet Isaiah said about that moment of the increase of his government. Will accomplish this. He will come to earth and sit on the throne of David. He will establish his kingdom with justice and with righteousness from this time forth, and forevermore he will rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's not just in the prophet Isaiah. It's also in what the writer Luke chronicles in the opening verses of his gospel when he described the birth of Christ and the prophecies surrounding Christ. And in Luke chapter 1 verses 31 to 33, this is what Luke wrote. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Oh, well, friends, Jesus will come bodily, he will come literally, he will come personally, he will come powerfully, and he will come to Jerusalem, and he will sit on David's throne, and he will rule. And reign as king and judge. He will reign over all of the earth. And listen. His first immediate act as sovereign Lord. Will be to decide who enters his millennial kingdom. Of those who are on the earth. And those who do not enter his kingdom. Look at what verse 32 says. Jesus says that when he comes and sits on his throne in power and glory, before him will be gathered all of the nations. Now you read that and you think, oh, Russia is going to be there. China is going to be there. Egypt is going to be there. Well, this word nations really has the basic meaning of peoples. And it refers to every person that will be alive on earth when Jesus physically returns to earth and when he returns to earth he will reign personally on a literal throne in a literal Jerusalem over a literal people as one writer observed this moment said the wonder is not that Jesus will someday come in glory to judge the world but that he first came in humility to save sinners the marvel is not that God promises to condemn sinners for their sin but that he first offers them deliverance from it. and coming to save those who trust in him, the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated his great love for the unlovely by bearing the penalty of their sin, dying the death they deserve. What is remarkable is that Jesus came to redeem sinners who are worthy only of his judgment. That is the amazing truth of the gospel, friends. Not that Jesus will come in power and glory to bring final judgment. Now these first two verses remind all of us that we're accountable. Oh, we exercise our free will. We choose to live our lives the way we please. But be not deceived. These verses teach that one day all of us will give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ for how we lived our lives, and for what we did with what he gave us. And listen to me carefully. There will be no exceptions. There will be no excuses. And there will be no favoritism on that day. Jesus' judgment will be perfectly righteous, and it will be perfectly just. And as J.C. Ryle said, you must come to this text with solemnity, Searching your heart and asking yourself this question. Are you ready to meet Jesus? Well, we not only see the setting of the judgment. We also, in verses 32 and 33, see the separation of the judgment. Jesus goes on and he says, And he will separate people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And Jesus is teaching us that his judgment will be a decisive separation of those who are saved and of those who are lost, of those who know him and of those who don't. And at the end of verse 32, Jesus says that when all of the nations have been gathered before him, he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Well, what is he talking about there? Well, in the culture of that day and even today, shepherds took their sheep and their goats and they frequently herded them together, but the sheep are quite different from the goats. They're gentle, they're more docile creatures, and the goats are more unruly and rambunctious. And so at night and at times of feeding, the shepherd would separate the sheep from the goats. And Jesus is saying, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, when he comes, he will separate believers from unbelievers as he establishes his earthly millennial kingdom. And in verse 33, look at what Jesus says. He will place the sheep on his right, and he will place the goats on his left. And the language that Jesus uses is verse 33, has its roots in the Old Testament and the practice of familial blessing. That when the patriarch of the family wanted to extend the blessing of the inheritance to the next generation, he would gather them together and he would place his right hand on the eldest son and his left hand on the other son and he would pronounce blessings on both of them. And to be placed on the right was to be given a position of blessing and favor and honor. It was to be given the inheritance. And to be placed on the left was to be given a position of disfavor and rejection. And look at what Jesus says. Those who truly know Him will be placed on His right, receive blessing and favor and honor and in the inheritance of His kingdom. And those who do not know Him will be placed on His left, and they will be ge- Rejected and be forced to depart from his presence. I wonder this morning on which side of Christ you'll stand. The right or the left. Will you receive the blessing of the inheritance of his kingdom? Or will you hear the dreadful words, depart from me? I never knew you. When we not only see the setting of the judgment and the separation of the judgment... In verses 34 to 40, we see the surprising commendation of the judgment. Look at what Jesus says in these verses and read them carefully because this section of this text is often misinterpreted, and I'm going to show you what I mean in a few moments. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now notice what he says in verse 34. This son of man is also the son of God. He is the divine king. And he will say to the sheep whom he places on his right... Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And in this verse, Jesus is describing the believers who will have survived the seven years of tri- tribulation. And they will be ushered into his a thousand-year millennial kingdom reign. And notice what the text says carefully. Christ makes it abundantly clear that these believers inherit the kingdom. Not based on the service that they have performed for Him. They inherit the kingdom because they have been blessed by God the Father. And they've been blessed by God the Father because they've trusted in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as a child does not earn an inheritance, but receives it on the basis of his being in the family... Likewise, believers in Christ do not earn their way into the kingdom of God. They receive their inheritance of the kingdom as a right because they are a child of God and they belong to God the Father because they've trusted in God's Son and they are fellow heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, Look in verse 34, Jesus says that the believer's inheritance, now don't miss this, if I were writing in my Bible, I would underline this verse, this inheritance was determined and prepared for them from the foundation of the world, and you say, well, when was the foundation of the world? Before Genesis 1-1. Before God ever spoke one thing in existence. God in his sovereignty. God in his providential redeeming work. Chose a people for himself to save. And he prepared for those people. Look at the language of the text. Prepared for you. Prepared personally. He prepared for them personally an inheritance in His kingdom through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. How did they get this inheritance of the kingdom? Because they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ And they were blessed by God the Father. How did they receive this inheritance of the kingdom? How did they receive their salvation? From before the foundation of the world, God the Father prepared it for them. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29. What is often known as the golden chain of salvation. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Salvation is all of God from beginning to end, friends. And the only reason these sheep are entering into the kingdom Is because they've been blessed by God the Father through God the Son. It's exactly what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 Blessed be the God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. This is the glory and the wonder and the amazement. Of our salvation. It is all of God. From beginning to end. And every single person. Who enters into the kingdom of heaven. Will have one boast. And one boast only. Jesus Christ. Alone. Now you'll notice in verses 35 and 36. Jesus moves on. And he identifies six areas of need. That these believers Tended to. First, he says that they dealt with the hungry, and this need was commonplace in the ancient world. Uh, people were not as obese then as they are today, because they didn't have a lot of food. And the righteous fed the hungry, Jesus says. They ministered to thirst. Water was scarce too, and it was often polluted. and the righteous gave water to the thirsty. They ministered to the strangers. In that culture, travel was difficult. Inns were dirty and full of crime and danger. And the righteous opened their homes and tended to the stranger. They ministered to those who were naked, those who lacked clothing. They outfitted the poor when they could. They ministered to the sick, offering comfort and care and compassion to those who were physically in need. And they ministered to those who were in prison, those who were rejected by most ordinary people. The righteous went and visited. Now notice this list. It's not exhaustive. It's used as an illustration by Jesus. And notice also in this list, the good deeds that he mentions in these verses are common, everyday needs. There is no mention of Jesus of some grand, monumental act that these believers did. They ministered to the common, everyday needs of companionship and clothing and food. And notice also carefully in the text that rather than being the source of the sheep's salvation. The good works that Jesus mentions in verses 35 and 36. Listen carefully to me. Because this is where people go astray in the text. These works that Jesus identifies. Were fruit of their salvation. It was not the cause of their salvation. Listen to your pastor carefully. The source And plan of salvation is found in God the Father alone and in His blessings. The purchase of salvation is found in God the Son alone and His work on the cross. The reception of salvation is found only by grace through faith in the Son And this salvation is delivered to us only by God the Spirit when we believe. Salvation is never of works. If a person has never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, no amount of good works, no matter how grand they are, will give them any spiritual merit or benefit. However, the kingdom of heaven is for those who have experienced salvation and then out of that salvation bear the fruit of their salvation by ministering to people's needs. And that is the sign and the evidence of true saving faith. If you want to know if a person is really a Christian, look at the fruit of their life. Does their character and the characteristics of their life match their profession? Does their life bear the fruit of the kingdom? Faith then works. That is how the Bible defines it repeatedly. James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Did you hear what James said? Your faith in Christ, if it's genuine, will be accompanied by genuine works, caring for people. John said it this way in 1 John 3, verses 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. How can you say God's love abides in you if you don't minister to other people? This is the sign and evidence of genuine saving faith. Now look in verses 37 to 39. Something powerful happens in this text. And when you read it quickly and glance over it, you missed it. And I would confess to you this morning that the first many times I read over these verses, I missed what is happening in verses 37 and 39. The righteous answer the king. And this is what they say to him. Lord, When did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Now notice the text and see if you see what I missed. The sheep were genuinely surprised that the king commended them. They weren't sitting there relishing In all the things that they had done to feed people and provide for their thirst and to give clothing. No, they ministered in a spirit of humility. They ministered in a spirit of selflessness. They ministered in a spirit of obscurity. And the text really lends us to believe that it's almost as if that these sheep had forgotten that they had done any of these things. And they were genuinely shocked that their king noticed and then commended them. Isn't that amazing? That God sees it all. That not one act of service through genuine faith is missed by Christ. And you could be discouraged In your service this morning, you could be discouraged in your walk of faith thinking that you've done this or you've done that and nobody notices, nobody cares, it's insignificant. And I'm reminding you this morning that God is writing it all down. And He'll bring it up one day. And bring commendation to it. Now notice in verse 40. The king responds to the question of the righteous. When did we do these things for you? And notice carefully his answer because this is also where people go astray in this text. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of everyone, you did it to me. Is that what he said? No. It's not what he said, but that's how most people interpret the text. Most people interpret the text that he's talking about people in general. Look at your Bible. That's not who he's talking about. Truly, truly, I say to you, as surely as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers or sisters in Christ, not the general population, you did it to me. Jesus is emphasizing the aim of good works. It's to be primarily first priority to the family of God. And notice what else is happening in the text. Don't miss this. This is so powerful. Jesus is identifying himself with his followers. He's identifying himself with you and with me. And he's calling us his brothers and sisters In Him. There are other examples of this type of language in the New Testament where Jesus identifies Himself with His people in the closest of terms. For instance, do you remember when the Apostle Paul was blinded on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 and verse 4? And Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus confronted him over his persecution of Christians. And this is what Jesus said in Acts 9 4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He identified with his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so friends, Jesus is not speaking here of good works on behalf of the poor and the destitute and the suffering in general. Now there's nothing wrong with those things. I'm just pointing out to you that that is not what the text is talking about. The text is talking about doing good works on behalf of the poor and the destitute and the suffering in the family of God. Good works on behalf of those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And why would Jesus say this? Because of the context of the passage. These believers will have just survived seven years of tribulation. And they will have refused the mark of the beast. And they will not have been allowed to buy and sell and trade. Many of them will have been put in prison for their faith. And he's commending believers who minister to their brothers and sisters in Christ under those terms. And I'll remind all of us this morning who are Christians... By loving and serving Jesus' brothers and sisters, you are loving and serving Jesus. Additionally, the person who lovingly serves the children of God proves that he is a child of God. That's why Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And I'll just say it to you in these simple terms this morning, friends. If you don't love the family of God, if you don't love the people of God, if you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you don't care for what is going on in their lives, if you don't talk to them, if you don't. Pray with them, encourage them, do the one another commands that is incumbent upon every believer, and you claim that you're a Christian. I just ask you this morning why do you have confidence in your faith? What you're living and testifying to is anti Scripture. Scripture says clearly that if you love Jesus, you will love His people that he died for and if you don't love his people that he died for even the difficult ones that require extra grace like me if you don't love them you don't love him so I ask you if you profess to be a follower of Jesus does your life bear the fruit of that profession Do you serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? And by implication, serve Christ himself. When you stand before Jesus, will he commend you? Because you loved him by loving his brothers and sisters. Well, we not only see the setting of the judgment and the separation of the judgment and the surprising commendation of the judgment, finally... We see the sobering condemnation of the judgment in verses 41 to 46. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now notice in verse 41 that Jesus says that the king will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, those who refuse to believe in Jesus, look at the text, they'll be cursed, not blessed. And they'll be united with the devil and his angels, not with Jesus and his angels. Now Christ did not condemn these people because of their lack of good works. They're cursed. Because they rejected Christ. Just as those who entered the kingdom are blessed because they trusted in Christ. And Jesus, in verse 41, is describing eternal separation from God and from all of His blessings. He is also speaking of eternal association and suffering with the devil and with his angels in a literal place of eternal fire. Look at the text that God has prepared for the devil. As one writer said, hell is not a place where the devil torments sinners. Hell is a place where the devil is tormented alongside of sinners. James Montgomery Boyce described the text this way, to spend eternity shoulder to shoulder with an evil being whose one goal has been to defy God and bring others to share in suffering forever. Will the devils not gloat that they have succeeded in bringing people to hell? Will they not gloat over you if you're there with them? That is the weight. The devils rejoice that people reject Christ. And they will not regret their rejection of Jesus in hell. They will gloat over all who are there with them. In verses 42 and 43... Jesus describes the evidence that confirms their rejection of him, saying, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Now notice these verses. Their response to the needs of believers was the exact opposite of the response of those who entered the kingdom of heaven. They did not love and serve God's people because they did not love and serve Christ. And their lack of compassion for the needs of others confirmed their unbelief. And like the blessed who are received into the kingdom, the cursed are rejected. And they'll also be surprised at the Lord's words to them. And so they ask in verse 44, do you see it? Lord... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then in verse 45, the king will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Written over the top of the description of their life will be these words, you did not do it. And you did not do it to me. For to fail to serve Christ's people is to fail to serve Christ. And to fail to serve Christ is to prove that you don't believe in Him. Notice also in these verses, friends. They are not sent to hell because of some egregious sin. They are sent to hell because of their unbelief. They simply did not believe. And they simply rejected Jesus Christ. And in verse 46, Jesus concludes the Olivet Discourse With a sobering statement that summarizes everything that he has conveyed to his disciples and to us. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. Notice the word eternal. It's used in this verse to describe both the salvation of the blessed. And the condemnation of the cursed. Unbelievers will go away into eternal punishment in hell. And believers will go away into eternal life in the millennial kingdom. Look at this verse. It's unfathomable. It is indescribable. It is inconceivable of what that moment will be like on that day. Words cannot fully picture it. It is a separation. It is a division that will take place immediately. There will be no delay and there will be no opportunity for a second chance. It will be full. It will be final. And it will be forever. One will experience eternal blessing. The other will experience eternal torment. One will be condemned. The other will be glorified. One will be full of joy. The other will be full of regret. And as Spurgeon said, not one goat will be left among the sheep, nor one sheep with the goats. There will be no middle company on that day. It will be a clear and final separation. It's unfathomable. It's indescribable. And yet God... In his mercy and grace and love appointed for you to be in this room this morning and hear this warning. No one describes the weight of this text more powerfully than the old Puritan John Owen. And this is what he said about these final verses. Listen with your heart, with your mind, and your soul this morning. Children, listen to your pastor. Teenagers, listen. Senior adults, listen. Everyone, listen. Why will you die? Why will you perish? Why will you not have compassion on your own soul? Can your heart endure? Or can your hand be strong in the day of wrath that is approaching? Look unto Jesus and be saved. Come unto Jesus and he will ease you of all your sins and sorrows and fears and burdens and give rest to your souls. Come, I entreat you, lay aside all procrastinations, all delays. Put off Jesus no more. Eternity lies at the door. Do not so hate Jesus as that you would rather perish than accept his deliverance. Why? Why, unbeliever? Why, unconverted church member, would you perish? When you can have Jesus right now, why would you wait? Why would you put it off another second? Why would you perish with the devil and his angels? Why would you reject Jesus? Why would you refuse to believe? Matthew chapter 25 is not a series of isolated stories. It is a window from Jesus showing us the events surrounding his return. And they're given to us as a warning to urge us to be prepared and ready for his return when we'll give an account of our lives to him. He is a bridegroom for whom we are to be prepared. He is a master to whom we must give an account. He is a king to whose judgment we must submit. And in all three cases, there is a division between the wise and the foolish, between the workers and the lazy, and between the sheep and the goats. Are you ready? Why would you perish? when you can have Jesus come to him today let's pray God we stand in humility under your word today your word is true your word is life God, there are so many different responses from this text, and we trust you today, God, through the power of your word and the power of your spirit to bring application to our lives today. We pray that you would use your word to encourage discouraged believers today that are ready to give up. We pray today, God, that you would awaken and open the eyes of those who don't know you and draw them to yourself before it's too late. We pray, God, that you would give us a burden for the lost. And we pray, God, that you would give us a burden for our brothers and sisters in Christ to love them and serve them and care for them to the end. Use your word in our lives in all of these ways today. Build your church, build your people, build your kingdom for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.